Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday morning teaching time, Keeping Your Joy, the Heartfelt Theology of an Isolated Prisoner. This is part 10. And this morning, the issue I want to look at is, what does Paul mean when he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? What does he mean when he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? So the text is Philippians 2. We're going to look at 12 through 16. I hope you have a Bible with you as we study together. Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, this is interesting, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. I find that interesting. And then he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's, this is one question I want to look at. Why more in his absence than presence? And then two, what does he mean, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? For it is God who works in you, both to will, the desire level, and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things now, this is not a new thought. This is continuing now what working out the salvation looks like. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom, he says, you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, when Jesus comes, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. I mean, few texts have been wrangled over more than this one. Arminians love to emphasize verse 12. Calvinists love to emphasize 13. And it's sad in a way because Paul's line of thought doesn't really run along the lines of that dispute at all. Rather, his, his wording of the text seems to link our work and God's work in this, in this wonderful, peaceful marriage rather than some kind of theological conflict. So we're going to look at those two questions. Why? Why are we to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? And in, in a nutshell, because everything about our standing in grace comes from God's sovereign hand. So these two sides of the truth, they embrace one another rather than fight one another. And our interpretation of the passage has to pull those two threads together. And then there's that strange wording of the first part of verse 12. I highlighted it. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, more in my absence. Now, I can certainly see why Paul wants them to be obedient both when he's with them and when he's not with them. I get it. But, but what can he possibly mean by saying they should obey him, quotes, much more in his absence than in his presence? Why more? Why more when he's away than when he's with them? So, those two questions are going to 
form the, the teaching agenda for our study of this text today. And, and I think the answers will best be found to those questions if, if we keep in mind that the whole of chapter 2, at least right up to verse 18, is an explanation and an expansion of the idea that Paul launched in Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Only, Paul said, this is the theme, eh? let, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that, and here's the same idea, so that whether I come and see you, so that's being with them, or I'm absent, it's the same as in our Philippians 2 text, same idea. Whether I'm with you or not with you, I may hear that you are standing firm in, in one spirit, we looked at this last week, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And then he says, this is a, this is a clear sign to them. In our text today, Paul says, among whom you shine as lights. Same idea. He's repeating the same thing. This is a clear sign to them, those are unbelievers, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So from this point on, Paul has been painting a picture of what a life worthy of the gospel what does a life like that look like? What does a life worthy of the gospel look like? And, and particularly, he's been painting a picture of what a life worthy of the gospel of Christ looks like together in the body of Christ. It's a corporate thing that he's thinking about. What does a life worthy of the gospel of Christ look like in the way Christians live together, in the way Christians treat each other? I mean, this gets really specific in, in Paul's mind. We looked at these words in Philippians 2, 2 to 4, where he says, he complete my joy by being of the same mind. Remember, they don't, they don't always think the same thing, but, but one big thing driving all their thinking, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, you get the picture, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, look, count others more significant than yourselves. This is what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of, of others. Man, man, if you kept going, I know this is a bit of a review. He, he, would, he would bring it all down to where the rubber meets the road in the very next verse. In the fifth verse, he would say, this, this, is, this is the mind of Christ. This is what Jesus did for us. This is, this is the kind of self-abandonment our Lord exercised, the kind of denial. He wasn't pursuing his own rights. He left everything for us. That's in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. He left everything for us. He considered us his enemies. More worthy than he was of keeping his own rights. And so Paul says, there, there's the motive. That's what a life worthy of the gospel of Christ looks like. Now, all of that, all of that has to be kept in mind when he comes down to verse 
12. We're in a position now. What does, what does Paul mean when he says we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? So after that introduction, point number one, how? How are we to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? The key word, I think, is therefore. At the very start of that verse, it shows that Paul hasn't switched subject. So he's not letting go of what he said before the therefore. He's, he's explaining it. He's expanding it. So working out our salvation has to be interpreted along the same lines as complete my joy by being of the same mind, Philippians 2, 2 to 4, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, that's what we do naturally, but the interests of others. Now, this is not working for my salvation. It's, it's working out my salvation. And the kind of working out, clearly, the kind of working out Paul has in mind is the working out of our salvation in relationships in the body of Christ. It's the working out of the mind of Jesus who left everything for us. Working out the mind of Jesus when I'm tempted to put my interests first, my rights first. That's why Paul very specifically says, Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, not just in you. He's not just talking about me and my Christian life by myself. Have the mind of Christ among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. The, the, the emphasis is on the way my salvation gets played out collectively, not just individually inside my own skin. Do I have the mind of Christ? Is that, is that working itself out? Is it manifesting itself? Do, do I put others first and myself last the way Jesus put me first and himself last? Is that what I do? That's the part of salvation that has to be worked out every day in the body of Christ. Having the mind of Christ among us. Then Paul tells us the reason we must work our salvation out relationally this way. The reason is, everything we have received in terms of the blessings of forgiveness, mercy, salvation. It's been graciously given. It's been worked into our lives by God in Christ Jesus. He accomplished everything for us while we were still enemies. For it's God who works in you. He accomplished everything for me while I wasn't interested in him. He worked miraculously for me when I was totally undeserving. So I stand on grace alone for everything I've received from Father God in Christ Jesus. So finally, Paul says, this, this should leave me, this should leave me working out the mind of Christ toward everyone else in the body of Christ with fear and trembling. 
I get that in 2.12 where he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. We still have to look at that issue. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What, what does that mean? How, how does knowing that everything I've received in terms of my own salvation, the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness, how does knowing that everything I've received in my salvation, that it's by grace alone, how does that set me to working that salvation out relationally in the body of Christ with fear and trembling? So, so just what is this fear and trembling anyway? Well, sometimes it helps. I mean, fortunately, this isn't the only place in the scriptures where Paul used that term. And maybe we can see the meaning that these words usually carry in Paul's mind. Let's look at just a couple of different references where he talks about fear and trembling. Here's one. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 3. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, here it is, and in fear and much trembling. So he uses it there. Here's another place where he uses those words. 2 Corinthians 7, 13, 14, and 15. Paul says, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. Paul was so proud of the, these people. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affliction, his affection for you, sorry, is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. There it is again. One more. Here's Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Of course, in that culture. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. All right. So the point to note in each of these cases is that those words, fear and trembling, they, they consistently describe an attitude manifested toward individuals in the churches that were mentioned. So these aren't descriptions of people fearing and trembling before God, at least not directly, but before other people with whom they were involved. So the first text describes the way Paul approached the church with fear and trembling. The second describes the way the church received Titus with fear and trembling. The third describes the way slaves were to serve their earthly masters with fear and trembling. So, this is exactly what Paul is telling the Christians at Philippi to do as well. His argument would go something like this. 
because this is the God has worked in you part, because you received everything that has to do with your salvation and eternal life so freely, so graciously from God, make sure you approach everyone else in the body of Christ, even those with whom you have a grievance, even unjust, wicked relationships like the slave-master issue that he talks about. Make sure you approach everyone in the body of Christ. If it's in the church, even those with whom you have a grievance or a problem, make sure you approach them with fear and trembling. Make sure there's a humble tenderness, even in the face of injustice, as you display the mind of Christ to other people. So, so the fear and trembling, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it's the opposite of a stance of retaliation. Assertiveness. My rights. I'm not, I'm not even though I could, I'm not lifting up myself in any way. I'm taking the low road because that's the one Jesus took for me when he came, leaving all of his rights, being treated totally unjustly, dying the death of a criminal on the cross. He did all of that for me. So work out that salvation in the body of Christ. Make sure you do it with fear and trembling like that. This is how the salvation that God has graced into my life, this is how it will get played out in the body of Christ. All the arrogance, all the demanding, all the exacting of justice. I won't do that any more than God did that of me. It was when I was his enemy that he forsake all of his rights and graced my life. So that's exactly, that's exactly the kind of working out our salvation that Paul has in mind. And it's, and it's clear, I think, from the way he expands on this in the next few verses. Look at the very next few verses, Philippians 2, 14 and 16. This is right after, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for his God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. What's the very next verse? Right here, 2, 14. Do all things without grumbling, questioning. Why do I have to put up with this? It's not right. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You, you, when I respond, when I work out my salvation with fear and trembling, a gentleness in the face of the trampling of my rights, the wrongness, the injustice of a situation, the difficulty of a situation, when I work out my salvation humbly the way Jesus did for me, he says, here's what happens. The whole world operates on a system of retaliation and justice. The whole world pursues its rights. When you don't, you shine. The world goes, wait a minute. Why are you so different? Whence this inner strength and peace that you have, 
even when you're wronged. Of course, if they truly relish their whole existence as an outflow of God's grace, they'll be people marked by ungrumbling. See, grumbling is the way the fallen self responds to unfairness. We grumble. But we are working out the mind of Christ, not the mind of self. So people will know this church, Cedarview Community Church, they will know this church understands the grace of Jesus because, because they will not be able to miss the same graciousness spilling over as the mind of Christ floods his people. This is, this is the way that light shines, 2.15. So it's this loving, condescending, humble, non-self-seeking humility that, that causes the words of these Christians to be heard as genuine. 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So there's that first question. What does it mean working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Now we're in a position to look at that other question I said we wanted to study. Why, why does Paul tell these Christians to obey much more in his absence than in his presence? That's point number two. And it's this. Who you and I are when no one else is looking is what will change the world. I get this in chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only, as, not only as in my presence, but much more, that's the strangeness, much more in my absence. And then he says, this is what we looked at, work out your salvation with fear and, fear and trembling. So, so the key question is this. Now that Jesus is gone, so here we are in 2020, in Cedarview Community Church, and there's nobody in Newmarket that can see Jesus anymore. He's gone. He's, he's ascended to the Father. We talk about him coming again because he's away right now. He's present by his spirit in his church, works through his word, through conscience, the body of Christ. He's present through his spirit, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. But he's not physically here anymore. He's absent. He's away. So the, here's the question. Now that Jesus is gone and he's no longer visibly present on earth, how will people believe that he still lives and still transforms lives? That's a really important question. How will the people around us know Jesus still lives? They can't see him anywhere. And how will they know that he still transforms lives? How will people come to hunger for more than just the religions they're involved in? What will give our words about everything we talk about? What will give our words credibility? Now that seems to be Paul's concern for the church at Philippi because, because he, he specifically mentions at least twice 
in the first two chapters, this idea about whether he's there or not there. The first time was in Philippians 1, 27 and 28. We looked at these words. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That's what the whole book is about. But here, so that whether, whether I come and see you, so that's physically present, or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Then he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So that's the first place that Paul dealt with this absent present scenario. The second place is in our text today, 14 and 15 of chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So in each case, what gives evidence of the reality of Christ is the manner in which these Christians show the mind of Christ to each other the way they work out their salvation in the body of Christ with the kind of condescending love that Jesus showed for them. But there's a catch. There's a catch. If those watching the believers at Philippi, let's take that church to whom Paul was writing, if everybody around the world watching believers at Philippi, if they all think they're living the way they live because Paul is there making them live that way. In other words, if they just do it when Paul is there, they'll see these people are followers of Paul, but how will they know they're followers of Christ? Only when Paul isn't there will the actions of these Christians at Philippi be a testimony to the transforming, living power and grace of Jesus. It's when Paul isn't there that these people will be pointed to Jesus as the only possible source for their transformed lives. That's the point. That's why Paul says, not just when I'm present, more, more, when there's no external pressure to do so, manifest, shine like lights, be a sign to everybody around that your life is changed by one thing, your devotion to Jesus Christ. And people will go, Jesus must be real because I can, I can just see his fingerprints all over this church at Philippi. I can see his fingerprints all over this church in Newmarket. It's when Paul isn't there that the people will be pointed particularly to Jesus as the only source of their transformed, loving, humble lives, where the love of Jesus is being worked out in the body of Christ. And so, and so Paul urges them to make sure they're more diligent to work out their salvation with fear and trembling to each other, 
especially when there's no one else there externally to motivate them. This, more than anything else, will cause the light of the gospel to shine. And this will cause Jesus Christ to be seen all by himself as living and gloriously transforming. It is ever so. It is the same calling to our church. It's the same calling to our church today. Work out your own salvation. God has worked so much in us, freely, graciously, lovingly. Work that out amongst yourselves. Let the mind of Christ be seen, even in unjust situations, without grumbling. Why? Well, then you'll shine as lights in the midst of a crooked generation. And do it all the more Monday through Saturday when people see the only source for your changed life is Jesus himself by his spirit. And the whole church said, I hope, amen. Let's pray. What a text. We're so grateful, Lord, for... We're so grateful for the undeserved mercy that you poured into our lives at the point of our salvation and every day since we walk in your loving, condescending mercy and grace. We never deserve it. There's a sense in which your mercy toward me is constantly unjust. I don't earn it. I thank you for it. May we, as a church, never become short-sighted. May we work out among ourselves. Work out that salvation. So it's extended as graciously as it's received. So that all around us, people will see what makes those people at Cedarview tick. What makes them so humbly, non-grudgingly, lovingly putting others ahead of themselves. Oh, Jesus must be real. Work that in all of our hearts. There's not one of us that can't grow more in this area. Do it in all of our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.